Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you guys. Today is the last sermon in our summer series on the Psalms. And if you've journeyed with us this summer, you've seen that the Psalms address the whole breadth of human experience. The psalmists invite us to share in their hope and their fear, joy, and anger as they come before God. And as we did last week this morning, we're going to be looking at a psalm attributed to a man named Asaph. Asaph was a chief musician that ministered in the tabernacle during the time of King David. So he would be like the Paul Vanderbilt of ancient Israel. Now, for those of you who are new, Paul Vanderbilt is our director of worship sitting right over there. Um, Paul has written a lot of incredible, beautiful music for our church that has been picked up by other churches and have been sung. But um, Paul has never written a song like Psalm 73 for us. And the reason is because that song would be about Paul's most painful moments and embarrassing sins and what they teach us about God's goodness. Now, that song would probably be pretty awkward for Paul to sing, and it would probably be pretty awkward for us to sing as well. But the good thing that it would do would normalize the idea that God welcomes us to come to him, not only with our faith and delight, but also with our frailty and our flaws. I think this is the gift of the Psalms for people like you and me. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 73. It's also printed in your order of worship, and you can uh, listen or just read along as I read. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant, I was like a beast towards you. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. This is God's word and given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, it is good to be with your people this morning. It is good to hear your word. And Father, I pray that indeed you would draw near to each of us wherever we find ourselves this morning, in faith, outside of faith, doubting, hurting, in distress, in joy. Wherever we find ourselves, may you meet each of us. Father, may you open our eyes. May we see clearly the one who the psalmist longs to be near, the one the the psalmist longs to touch and to see. May we see him, the face of Jesus, and may we be healed by your grace this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, 1999, I left my home in California and I flew to Chicago for the first time to attend college at Moody Bible Institute here in the city. My home church, where I was an intern, had thrown me a huge goodbye party. And so I spent that night uh, laughing and hugging and saying my goodbyes and shedding many tears with my closest friends. Maybe because of that experience, I imagined that Moody as a whole was just as, just as excited about having me arrive as I was. They had a welcome program that included a pickup at the airport, and something in me sort of expected that they would have, I don't know, like 20 to 40 students and faculty waiting in the terminal at Midway, celebrating as I got off the plane. But in reality, as I walked down the ramp, I didn't see one person holding a sign up with my name on it. The crowd cleared away, and still there was no one that appeared to be looking for me. So I got my bags, and I waited. And I waited, and I waited, and after a long time, I came to a terrible conclusion. I had been forgotten. And if there was Twitter, it would have been hashtag David Lost in Chicago. Help. Now, of course, this was before cell phones and Twitter, um, and so there were only about two numbers that I had memorized a call on a payphone at the airport. Now, of course, one was my parents, but I knew if I called them that they would just cry. So I called the only other number that I had memorized, 1-800-DL-MOODY. And someone actually answered. It took them a few hours to round up a student to come get me, and by the time I finally arrived, I had missed freshman orientation. Now, it seemed to me like everyone around me had found a friend, was having the time of their lives, and while I had somehow become invisible on my plane ride from San Francisco to Chicago, 
And that feeling of being invisible haunted me for my first year at Moody. Now, when I look back, I have no doubt, no doubt that God in his goodness had brought me to Moody. But the moment I landed in Chicago, the evidence of God's goodness seemed to just disappear. And that led me to question what God's goodness meant. What my, whether my circumstances really mattered to him. Whether he meant, meant good for me. Now there are, of course, moments in all of our lives when we may question God's goodness. Whether you've been laid off from a job or maybe you're facing a deep tragedy, like the loss of a loved one. Asaph is facing such a moment in Psalm 73. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He starts off this psalm with a declaration of God's goodness. And he has no doubt in his mind that God has been good to Israel, has been good to his people. But he's about to tell us a story about a time when he wondered whether God sees us, whether he is indeed good. This story is not necessarily about the wicked, although they are major characters in the story. But at its core, this story is about whether God's presence makes a real and meaningful difference in our lives. It's about whether the gifts that he has given us are enough. Now, we're not specifically told who the wicked are that he's referring to, but here's what he does tell us. They have no problem using violence to terrorize in order to get ahead. They play by their own rules. They have given themselves over to the lust of self-indulgence and self-promotion. He says their hearts overflow with follies. They use threats and are happy to oppress to get ahead. And they are proud of living this way. He says that pride is their necklace and their tongue struts through the earth. Now what troubles Asaph is that this way of living is actually working really well for them. The wicked are on top, affluent, with no care in the world, and Asaph is down below, looking up at them, envying their prosperity. Now, the Hebrew word that gets translated prosperity in verse 3, prosperity of the wicked, is the word shalom. And it doesn't just mean wealth. Shalom means wholeness and peace in the most robust ways that we can think of it. It means wellness of body, mind, and spirit. It's what existed in Eden in the very beginning. But here are these grown-up bullies who delight in terrorizing the neighborhood, and they are sleeping like babies at night. They eat and drink until their eyes swell up. They, are, they have overfed, sleek bodies, and they have plenty of friends and money to go around. And maybe worst of all, the glamour of the lives of the wicked have turned the heads of God's people. Asaph says in verse 10, Therefore God's people turn back to the wicked and find no fault in them. 
Like thirsty puppies, they lap up the words of the wicked. So there are two things that are going on as we read Asaph's story. On the one hand, he feels like a crazy person, that he's in crazy town. Because things are completely upside down. And if you remember, God had revealed himself uh, to his people after the exodus. He had given them his law and told them how they would be prosperous if they follow him and his law. But the wicked here are getting away with murder and seemingly, seemingly all the better for it. Make no mistake, Asaph is angry and he is lamenting. And he is losing sleep trying to figure this out and making no headway. The wicked, on the other hand, have a theory about what's going on. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, God must not be around. Or he must not be paying attention. And frankly, Asaph can't help but have his own questions. Questions that might feel familiar to many of us. How can a good God allow people to get away with evil? What comfort does God give to those who follow him in a world where wickedness seems to flourish? Now the second thing that's going on here is this. Once Asaph starts to question God's goodness, there are some very real implications. If God isn't good, if it doesn't matter whether he, that we are his children or not, then it's every man and woman for themselves. If God isn't good and he isn't present and caring for his children, then we are living in a world where the law of scarcity is king. Now, if you want to know what the law of scarcity looks like, I would encourage you to stop over at Costco right after the service. I want you to go to Costco, walk around, stand back, and watch what happens when the employees who are giving out sample, samples, are busy filling up their little trays. People begin to gather around like piranhas. But as it gets closer to the moment when the tray is about to come out, nobody is going to budge to let someone through. Nobody is going to make a way for a little kid, even if the sample is bad. I mean, think about it. Something primal makes people say to themselves, I'm going to get one of those little fish sticks no matter what. Because there might not be enough. So Asaph, he is disheartened by the world that he sees in front of him and slipping from remembering God's goodness. And he begins to ask the question, he begins to ask the question, what about me? What about me, God? And he writes, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now we don't know if Asaph is referring to the cloud of deep depression that he described in Psalm 77, or if he's stricken by a long and difficult illness. 
But we do know this, that we feel the bitterness and the frustration as he compares his lot to that of the wicked. The good life that the wicked experience has sharpened Asaph's bitterness as he considers his own life. And the truth is, he's not just, ju- just disapproving because the wicked don't deserve the good life. His insides are all churned up because they have it and he doesn't. And when he compares their charmed life with him, with his, he is overtaken with envy. Now, it's easy to justify our envy when it is directed at someone who we don't think deserves the good things that they have, as in the case of Asaph. But envy, like unforgiveness, doesn't just harm its object. It does incredible damage to our own souls. Envy is always destructive, no matter the object. I think envy comes from this hidden belief that there is a limited amount of good in the world and that we are in competition with one another in order to get our share. When we envy, we don't just want someone else's life. We begin to resent their life. And I think all of us, to some degree, have been pricked by envy at some point or another. Our coworkers get recognition that we think we deserve and we begin to stew over the ways that we think that we work harder than they do. A friend seems to charm everyone they meet, making us feel invisible next to them and we can't help but ruminate on their flaws. They're not that great. Envy works the other way as well. One writer confesses, In the misfortune of our best friends, we always find something pleasing to us. When we feel a tinge of satisfaction as someone that we care about falls down just a bit the economic or social ladder, that is envy at work. And envy, if we let it, will eat us alive. It will strangle our joy our sense of humor, our perspective, our ability to see our own faults, our ability to love, it will make us less human. You know, that's exactly where we find Asaph in verse 16. He is beaten down by his powerlessness to make sense of evil. And the heaviness of his resentment that the wicked have what he does not. And he writes, But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now it's hard to miss that this is the turning point of this psalm. The sanctuary is the tabernacle, the place where God was present in a unique way to his people. So he is saying that when he came into God's presence, something dramatically shifts in his heart. He encounters God's goodness. And from the high rock of God's goodness, the world looks very different. And when Asaph looks out, he is able to see with clear eyes the slippery slope where he almost lost his footing. And the wicked, right 
there on it about to trot off a cliff. And he says, I discern their end. And in the end, the wicked and all they have accumulated will be swept away and it will be as if they never were. And to put it another way, nothing that is evil will last. And because God is good, he is also very just and he has eyes that see and it is his to vindicate. And in the end, it is God's goodness that will prevail. And this should give us courage and comfort as it did Asaph as we engage against the evil that is present in our world and in our own city. And Asaph also finds comfort in another truth. God in his goodness is happy to rescue even the wicked. I love Asaph's confession. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph is able to recognize that there is light and darkness that is present in his own heart. But he worships a God who rescued King David, a murderer and adulterer. His God rescued the Apostle Paul, a state-sponsored informant who carried out religious persecution. And we see that this God responds to Asaph's confession by not just forgiving his sins. God gathers him close. He takes him by the right hand and he actually redeems his envy. Do you know that evil can never create, it can only corrupt. Envy is the warping of desire. It is over-desire. It is desire without love. And God made us as the desiring beings. We desire connection. We desire purpose. We desire beauty. We desire love. But I find it strange that it's always easier to look at the good that someone else has and want to take it for ourselves than to recognize and name our own desires. And I think the reason is because giving voice to desire makes us vulnerable. It feels like we're naked. And so we risk humiliation and we risk rejection. But like Asaph, when we confess our envy and we invite God to help us trace it back to its source, nine out of ten times we will, we will find some very good desires. So what is it that Asaph desires? We find that he desires health and safety and freedom from both violence and illness of body and mind. And these are all good things. These are all things that we desire. They were given to us in the garden. And they will be restored again when Jesus makes everything new. But it is important for us to see that we envy others' beauty, for example. Because we cannot see our own beauty. 
when we come to God with the desire that our lives be beautiful, we find that we don't have to steal or mar other people's beauty to get it. Because God will show us in his goodness how he has made each of us uniquely beautiful. That we are the most beautiful thing that he has ever made. That he says he has made us very good. And so we can come to him with our loneliness and name our desire to be loved and seen and wanted. We can come to him with our anxiety and name our desire for security. We can come to him in our depression with our desire for relief because he loves us. And so here's the question for each of us this morning. Will you trust him? Will you trust him with your desire and see how his goodness will meet each of you? We read in verse 25 that Asaph has experienced a distilling of his desire. He concludes, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, for him to say that there is nothing on earth that he desires besides God doesn't mean that Asaph wants to only spend time in the tabernacle from now on or he doesn't need human relationships. It means that experiencing God's loving presence has convinced him that a deeply good life, a fully human life, can only be found in him. Asaph has answered the question of where his wholeness and his prosperity and his shalom come from. That we will never be satisfied. We will never be secure. We will never have enough if we look for life apart from his presence with us. Apart from his goodness. And you know what's beautiful? is that we can be assured of God's presence with us, his goodness towards us, even in a way that Asaph could never imagine because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who was most deserving of glory and yet never said, what about me? What about me, God? Why didn't I get what I deserve? In fact, Jesus gave up everything that he deserved in order to give it to us. And when God looks upon us, he sees the face of Jesus, the most non-envious person in the history of the world. And we get credit for his life, and we get to receive the delight that God has in him. We get his goodness. And because of Jesus, we can say with Asaph, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you that Asaph had the courage to be able to share this internal struggle with us that is often not public or seen by other people. Father, that his doubt of your goodness has led him 
to envy. Envy the wicked. And Father, we often find ourselves there. Envying those around us. Finding ourselves in a pit and don't know how to get out. And so, Father, wherever we're at this morning, whatever we desire, may we go to you because we know that you will honor us with kindness with our desire. And, Father, you long to give us the desires of our heart. We pray that we do that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.